Hey fellow nerds, I'm Megan Smiley and this is the Lawyer's Escape Pod. For those of you who've gotten into practice, looked around and thought, so this is my life? I get it. You're in deep and you feel stuck. You may have no idea what the next step would be, or maybe you have an idea, but think it's unrealistic. I truly believe that there's a path forward for each of us if we're intentional about finding it. And this podcast will be a great source of advice and inspiration for you to make that leap to a more fulfilling career. Hey nerds, before jumping into this episode, I wanted to just touch base on a few things. First, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, I admit I was a little delinquent last week and didn't get the episode up on time. I'm sorry, but moving forward, we'll be back to our normal Monday schedule. I also wanted to apologize to anyone who listened to Sherry Dunn's episode and it cut off at the end. I'm not sure what happened there, but I pushed it back through and it seems to work, so you may just need to re-download it. Finally, I wanted to remind everyone that there is a private Facebook group that you're all welcome to join. I hope it might be a place to continue some of these conversations. If you have any questions or comments for me, you can always find me there or contact me through the website. On to today's episode. My guest is Melissa Lorenzo Hervé. She's a senior attorney editor at the Practical Law Company, which is a division of Thomson Reuters, as well as the CEO and creative director of Pirouette NYC, a clothing line for professional women. Melissa tells us about how she built this dual career after leaving the practice of law. I think you'll really enjoy today's episode. Thanks. Welcome, Melissa. I'm so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm so happy to have this opportunity. Yeah, I, uh, I'm really excited to chat with you because I, I could feel even just from our email interactions that you were going to be a fun and high energy person to chat with. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. That, that yeah. aligns with, um, I think, what most people would say about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You're putting out into the world the, the right energy. <laughs> I hope. So now how does that align with being a lawyer? How, how did you end up at law school? Um, I don't know if it aligns at all. Um, when I was in junior high, I read an article in the original Sassy magazine. I know I'm dating myself here, um, but that was you know, probably one of the edgiest things I was reading as a seventh grader. And I read an article about migrant workers and how laws apply differently to them, employment laws. For example, they're allowed, if you're a migrant worker, the child of a migrant worker, you're allowed to legally work at a younger age, you're allowed to be paid less than minimum wage. And I just read about all these injustices and the lawyers who were trying to help these kids and their parents so that they would stay in school and so that they would um, have the same rights that regular Americans born here have when they have jobs. And I thought, I'm going to be one of those lawyers. I want to help these people. Of course, there's a language barrier. I'm fluent in Spanish because my parents are Cuban and I grew up with grandparents who didn't speak English. So I thought I have this advantage that I can help all these people who are unfairly treated. And um, that was always my thought process that I would go to law school and help people who don't have access to the law. Yeah. It's an honorable, uh, honorable reason to get into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't, um, pan out that way exactly once student loans are it never it, it never right, does right, right? <laughs> I mean I, I was happy I could do some pro bono work but no I've never represented a migrant worker yeah so um so what did you do throughout law school did you focus on immigration or did you sort of almost 
like a lot of us get off track once you actually were in a you know law for a law right so so but by the time I was even in high school and in college um I was less focused and less interested in doing strictly immigration work I thought that's something I could do in addition to work that would actually pay the bills and help me live a normal life um I always had this focus on being independent and and just making my way financially and not relying on anyone um and being an immigration lawyer I thought wasn't a path to to that sort of life um so I did focus on international law and I tried to take classes that would help me learn how to work with lawyers in the EU, for example, or work with lawyers in different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I did volunteer for a while with the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society so that I could help immigrants while I was in law school. I went to Penn and they had a requirement, they might still have it, where you had to have so many hours of volunteer service mm-hmm. to graduate. Um, but then I was really focused on figuring out how could I work with international companies and how could I work at a law firm that had offices abroad. So that was where that led me, having the language capabilities and trying to figure out how could I use that so that I'm not just another lawyer working on deals or another lawyer um, that doesn't have those advantages. Yeah. Yeah. As, as someone who works with a lot of LLM students, we always say, you know, your language is your differentiator. <laughs> use it mm-hmm. to get a job. Right. But right. so where did you end up after uh, you graduated from Penn? So then I started working at Hughes Hubbard and Reed in New York. I had already worked with them two summers in Miami, which is where I'm from. And then I had worked with them one summer in New York. Um, And I thought I was so lucky to be there. And all my friends told me I was so lucky to be there because even though it was a very big firm and, you know, huge uh, Wall Street type firm, it had really nice people. They're just known for having really nice people and, you know, law firm partners, especially at the bigger firms, are notorious for being mean to part to associates. And this firm didn't have that reputation, even though it had the similar um, client work and similar billables. It was just a great place to land because the people were so nice. And the work was also interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So did you enjoy your time there? Some of it yeah. in terms of meeting other great attorneys and friends and, and nice people that I'm still in touch with today. But I also met, you know, the partners that everyone else complains about who were, you know, mean to me or just expected me to know a lot more than I could ever possibly know as a person who just graduated law school a few months prior. Um, And um, yeah, it was just insane amounts of work and made me wonder, why am I doing this? You know, sometimes I'm just going home to shower and change and all of that, you know, you only have to do that a few times for all the nicer stuff to just fade away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally true. Cause I, I agree. Not every, my, the law firm I work for was nice people too. Right. But mm-hmm. you know, it, if you sort of fundamentally don't love what you're doing or it's, it's driving you to sort of burn out, it, nice right. people don't completely counteract that. <laughs> right. And some of those nice people are people just a few years older than you who've been doing the same work and you see, well, then, it doesn't get better. I'm going to be a third year here and still feel like this and still be pulling these amounts of hours and yeah. not be able to see my friends or do much outside of this office. So that I, I started to see like, well, what's the point even down the line? I'm just paying my loans. Yeah. So what did you start to think about when, you know, you're like, okay, this might not be for me. Sort of mm-hmm. What was your thought process? I change? 
I think it was a pretty scattered thought process because I was always so distracted by wanting to be in fashion and wanting to go into design and wanting to do something that would help just the regular woman who's trying to look good and trying to feel confidence and trying to straddle that line between professional and attractive. And um, not, not that there should be any tension there, but I think society kind of convinces us that you're either one or the other. And so I always had that in the back of my head, but I never had a viable path or even image on how do I make that work? So when I wasn't working, I was watching the New York Fashion Week shows on TV and whatever I could get online. And so I just thought in an ideal world, I could design something and sell it and just be in that space. Um, But then I also liked writing and I liked um, everything to do with publishing. So I thought, well, maybe there's a way to get into legal publishing. So I'm still staying in the legal world and I can use what I know about law and the courts and even Mm -hmm. just how contracts are drafted. Um, But again, I just didn't know anyone in that space and I didn't know how to get into that space. I think today it's easier. You you know, you want to do something, you Google it, or you find someone who works in that area and you start asking questions. But back then I also felt like, well, how could I leave? I worked so hard to get here. I have all these student loans and I don't want to leave Manhattan. So I felt like I just feel stuck and I have to just keep doing this until I figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that sounds very familiar. I think a lot of us are, you know, you have some ideas swirling in your head, but it just, mm-hmm. it, it seems hard to nail anything down to really take a active yeah. step away. Or even um, find the space and the time to sit down and figure that out. I, I think, you know, we think <laughs> yeah. it's just going to pop into our head one day when really, no, you should probably go for a walk and, you know, think about it and write it down and create a, a plan, yeah. not just wait for someone to give you an idea and say, yeah, I should I just go and do that. Yeah. I actually think you sort of said that off the cuff about writing it down, but I actually Mm -hmm. think that's huge, really good advice because I think that we have ideas, but they sort of come and go and maybe don't take them seriously, but there's something about writing something down that is just, and even not even on a computer, like write it down with a piece of paper. I know that sounds like I'm old, but I think something sticks in your head more when you write it down. For sure. So yeah. It, yeah. Uh, you had to do something physical with something yeah. that was only mental. And so those yeah. two gelling together, hopefully it sticks in your head. There are so many ideas we have that just because of the way we live, we're so distracted. We never get a chance to double click on that idea and see yeah, like, what, exactly. what, what could I do with it. Yeah. So, so you did ultimately leave uh, mm-hmm. Hughes Hubbard. So where did you go after that? So I left um, to another firm thinking, well, that'll solve it. I'll just go to another firm and I'll do different types of work because I was doing yeah. a lot of e-discovery intensive work at Hughes Hubbard. They had a huge um, case with Vioxx and then I had was working on another class action. Um, and it just felt like I was doing a lot of routine document processing doc review work and I thought well maybe yeah. I should just you know go to from work and work on deals and then I went to Trotman Sanders for a year and worked on a few deals there um, but it wasn't that much happier my hours yeah. were better but um, then it felt like I was lucky to be put on a deal because there are only so many to go around right. um, and so I realized I'm not happy and I can only do this for so long and then it wasn't working out with the firm anyway and so I eventually landed at a company called Fortent where they had an idea that all of these people working at banks who aren't lawyers need to understand all of these different um, banking regulations and banking laws that come out every 
day or every week. And so they needed just one lawyer. And that became me. And I started reading all of these banking regs and articles about Basel 1, Basel 2, and anti-money laundering and KYC laws and drafting summaries of that um, and publishing them. And so that was my way to get into publishing and work with former Bloomberg editors and learn how to write in a way that wasn't legalese. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. So, um, so, but you had, I assume you had to be a lawyer for that job. So even yes. though it wasn't technically practicing law, you right. They only were interested in, in the, right. Yeah. In the lawyer. Yeah. Right. And how did you find that job? Because, you know, you said you'd sort of been interested in getting into mm-hmm. something different, but I think it was through a headhunter. I think I met yeah. with different headhunters, different legal recruiters, um, most of whom were just talking about different firms. And I realized there's no point in that. And then I think that one came up through a recruiter. I wish I could yeah. remember which one. So you were pretty clear at that point after having tried a, a smaller firm that it that nothing about being in the firm world was going to work for you? At least not in the New York firm world. I mean, maybe if I were right. in a different city or doing something that was really specific in a specific area, maybe if I was representing migrant workers who didn't speak right, English, I'd be right. ecstatic. I'd be super happy <laughs> yeah. to go to work every day. Or maybe if I was working with immigrants. Um, but in that world that I was living in, where I'm going to live in New York, and I'm going to pay my loans, and I'm going to live in a nice apartment, and I'm not going to live above, I don't know, 110th Street. I don't know what my thinking was, but that was something that I thought I could do well in and learn something outside of law firm life. I really didn't consider going back to another firm. Yeah, yeah. And so when you made that shift, you sort of, in your mind, were you saying, okay, not only am I leaving firms, but I'm leaving the practice of law? Or are, were, did you see it as sort of like, hmm, this is different and interesting, and I'm going to go, you know, check this out and see where it leads, but maybe I'd end up back in the practice of law? No, no. And I'm not, I'm not someone who does that type of decision where I'm going to try this out and see where it goes. Yeah. Like when I make a decision, I'm making that decision. I'm going that way. And I thought enough about it where I know I want to do it. I, do, I go all in. I wasn't just trying it out. I, yeah. I was trying out publishing maybe, but I wasn't trying out not working at a firm. I didn't want to practice. I didn't want to have billables. I didn't want to have my entire life sacrificed because of these clients who expected me to work all day Saturday and all day Sunday and not attend friends weddings and just miss out on everything that's important to me. Yeah, <laughs> I totally get that. I mean, I had the same experience. Like when I left, I, I, I at no point then or, you know, since thought that I'd, I'd get back into the practice of law. Mm-hmm. For me, it just wasn't, you know, something that I, I needed to have that door be open. Although I do think for some people, it is a door people go back and forth. Um, but I'm always just curious to hear what people's mentality is when they when they make that jump, because it is a big investment to have gone to law school and to have these loans and sort of be a lawyer. But, um, but right. you sound like someone that just makes a decision and goes, which probably makes all of this a lot easier. <laughs> right. And I also didn't feel like I was leaving the world of law and I was abandoning right. my legal education. I was going to keep using it. I feel like I've never stopped using it. I always sort of feel kind of bad for people when they're like looking at a contract for the first time or they're confronting legal issues and they've never even at least had the first year of law school. I think just the first, just having the first year of law school is so important just to make your mind work the way it should work if you're analyzing anything from a legal standpoint. 
Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So, so then you kind of kept on this path of the, the legal publishing, right? Right. And then that company that I was working for, actually, when the recession happened, within a few weeks, um, they basically said they had to lay everyone off, or they had to lay off at least 300 people. I was one of those people. And I had just given birth to my daughter um, a few weeks prior, a few months prior. And so I thought it was great, because I didn't have a great maternity leave plan at that company. So I thought, oh, great. So I'm just not going to work and I'm going to have severance and, and I can be home with my tiny baby daughter and not have yeah. to worry about how am I supposed to go back to work when I can't afford a nanny and I can't find a preschool or a daycare that will take her. Yeah. And so um, I was basically with my daughter at home for a few months. Actually, I had been working already a little bit, um, a few hours, I think a day when I was at home with my daughter. Um, and then that happened. And so I just thought, oh, I don't know what's going on, but there's this insane recession and there are banks yeah. closing every day. So nobody knows what's going on. Yeah, it was a crazy time. It was a really, really <laughs> crazy time. Then it was even crazier because then where my husband was working at the time, they started laying off people too. So we were just like, we have no idea where we're going to be in six months. But yeah. it looks like both of us will be unemployed with this yeah. little baby. Yeah. Ooh, that's scary. <laughs> and, and I know you're fine now, but even just saying that, I was like, oh, well, now I'm getting stressed about it. <laughs> so, but everything did work out for you. Yes. And because I had, um, I think it was like two and a half, I forget how many years, maybe three, it was at that publishing, um, in that publishing role, my best friend's husband, um, who's in-house at Barclays, his um, neighbor was already working where I work now at Thomson Reuters. At that time, we were practical law. We were not yet acquired by Thomson Reuters. And he said, you know, she's a former editor. Why don't you talk to her? And so um, she was so nice. She spoke with me and she told me about this role at practical law. And I've been there now 10 years. Wow. So what do you do there? So we produce content, basically guides, practice notes, checklists, form docs for lawyers who practice in-house or at law firms. We have, I would say, close to maybe 350 lawyers in the U.S. and maybe another 150 in London. We're no longer in practice. We've all practiced usually at the bigger firms, some of us at small firms, some of us in-house. And we're producing the guides that we wished we had when we were in practice. So whether you're working yeah. on your first IPO or your first filing in the Southern District of New York, or you're preparing your first document retention policy, or you're having to negotiate an executive compensation agreement, whatever you're working on at a law firm, we usually have a guide for that that walks you through the steps, sort of like a recipe. This is how you bake this cake. Well, this is how you prepare yeah. this filing. This is how you complete this task. And so it's like the cliff notes to explain it in a way that non-lawyers would understand for all of these legal tasks that lawyers do every day and are having to jump onto Westlaw or Lexus or Google or send out ISO emails to friends. How do I do this? We're just saying, here's right. the form. It's going to be prepared in a way that will include drafting notes that are in plain English. So even if you're not an IP lawyer, you'll understand this IP issue after reading this guide. And we update yeah. them every time any law changes or any of the regs change that are cited in that doc. And whenever we cite or in that practice note or in that checklist, and whenever we cite, yeah. let's say to a state regulation or to a federal law, we link you to the text of that law. So you can imagine how much time that saves and how much more efficient 
any lawyer's yeah. work, right? <laughs> when you have this guide basically yeah. holding your hand saying, oh, is this the agreement you're preparing? Here's a form version that is accurate and complies with Massachusetts state law or complies with Florida state law, whatever it is right. you're working on. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I'll be honest, that sounds like a nightmare to me. <laughs> I definitely really? I never loved the research and writing. So I think, oh, okay. so I think it's like, we're all different, right? Like you may not, a lot of us may be unhappy in law firms, but it may be for different mm-hmm. reasons. And that's why I think it's so important for each of us to ask ourselves, what is it that I like, don't like? What are I what are my skills and strengths? Because, you know, I think there are a lot of people out there who would, who would love to keep sort of in this space of legal academics, because I think a lot of people really love law school. I I love law school too. Um, Mm -hmm. But when I came out to go into a firm, I was deciding between litigation and and corporate. And then I sort of had an epiphany that I hate research and writing. (laughs) And I I, decided to go with corporate, which was definitely the right choice for me. Now, ultimately, mm-hmm. I didn't love practicing that either. But, um, but I just think it's, it's great to hear, you know, people have different, different interests within the law and different things that they're, they find that they're trying to get away from. So I think right. it's cool to hear that, you know, it really was the law firm, it was the practice that you didn't love. It wasn't sort of the academic research side of it that you didn't No, because I loved learning and, yeah. and I, I, I could have just, you know, I don't know, stayed reading books all day if that was an option. But yeah. um, the profile of most of the editors, I think that we hire are those people that they didn't love the combative side. They didn't love the... Um, adversarial side so much but they loved researching and they they're good at writing and they're good at explaining things really clearly and breaking things down um but doing that you know for 80 hours a week in addition to trying to have a life and you know get your laundry done is a little impossible but if you could do it you could do it in a way where you can still have a life and um you don't have that pressure of the client saying i need this you know, within the next 10 minutes, then it's just a more relaxed life. And you're still using your legal knowledge and it's a supportive environment because you're working in media, you're working with editors and, you know, marketing people and salespeople who are out there selling what you're writing. And you know that you're helping the end user so many times and you're at a firm and you work on a deal and then the deal falls through and you're like, well, what was all that for? Right. Right. No, I mean, I mean, I could completely see how useful it is. (laughs) But then there's this whole other side of you. That's right. <laughs> but tell us about that. That's right. You know, you sort of referenced that you had another interest in, in your background when you were thinking things right. that you ultimately did pursue. I did. I, it never went away. I always thought my interest in fashion would go away um, and it never did. Um, and I think I just turned it into something more practical. So like a lot of people who work in New York or other big cities and they see, you know, everything going on after work and they feel they're missing out. I was seeing especially women missing out because they hadn't dressed for going out after work and something pops up and guys sometimes can just easily go however they're dressed or even at firms, men just take off their tie and then they're ready to go out. And I saw women, you know, schlepping bags to work and spending all this time in the bathroom changing or just missing out because they, weren't going to go to that specific event. They didn't have time to go home and change. And I was um, always interested in designing for women. And I had this shirt dress that I would wear sometimes to work and everyone would compliment. And then they would say, but I can't wear that because 
it makes me look too wide or the skirt, the way it falls, wouldn't be flattering. So I thought, well, what if I made a shirt dress that was narrow and had a pencil skirt and had the same level of fabric quality that my husband's um, work shirts um, Mm -hmm. have. And I just found a way to make a really elevated version of the shirt dress and create a company where I was producing these dresses in New York and importing fabric from Korea and Italy and France and basically schlepping to the garment district during lunch and after work so that I could meet the fit model or meet with the fabric vendor or whoever was going to just help me with the next step so I can get the template and then just little by little build a company where I could sort of do what I'm doing at work in terms of helping people, but helping women feel confident and look professional and have a closet that's way more efficient than what we're told we can have. We're told you have to buy one thing for work and one thing for the weekend and one thing for date night, one thing for all these different parts of your life. And it's not a modern or logical way to get dressed or to even approach how you get ready in the morning. And Marie Kondo would not approve of all of these things. Just get one that sparks joy and be done with it. (laughs) Exactly. And get one that you can wear next year. If it's really good quality, it shouldn't be something that's, you know, fast fashion and you discard it. It's something that if someone takes a picture of you today wearing one of these dresses, they can't date that picture in two years or five years or 10 years. Yeah, well, that that's that's really exciting and very um, impressive. I'm just curious how you know you sort of said, oh, well, then I just started this company, but it's it sounds like something that would be hard to do from sort of just from nothing, right? So, how did you think about how to even take the first step of starting that? And did you felt like you had time in your life, given your your job, to do all of this? Obviously. No, I didn't have time. And that's why it took me so long to get anything off the ground because yeah. I think I didn't mention, then I had my son. So I had two little kids and then we had moved to Hoboken. So we was commuting back and forth and I had these ideas that I would talk to people about, but I didn't know how to get anything going, not just because I didn't have time, but how do I buy fabric? Where do I go? I'm not just going to Google it and expect to you know, find the right thing. And so I think being a lawyer also makes you feel like you have to exhaust all options before you figure out what you're doing. Um, (laughs) That's not the way people in fashion work. And that's not the way people outside the law usually work. Like just find a fashion person or just find a fabric person. And then that'll lead you to the next one. So I think it was just you talking to different people and saying, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. How do I do this? And then I was eventually connected to someone who connected me to someone else and just having these conversations with different people. Um, I ended up meeting someone, actually her name is Tavia Sharp and she had designed for Nautica and for Macy's on the men's side. So she knew all about how to create a tech pack and how to get a pattern sewn. And I had had my wedding dress and a few other dresses made by someone in New York who is a dressmaker and basically can do anything with any design you bring him. And I said, well, what if you made for me a sample? And then once I have a sample, then I can find someone who can manufacture Mm -hmm. more and more of these in different types of fabric. And so I did that. And then through my friend Tavia Sharp, I was able to meet pattern makers and sample makers in New York. Um, But it, it just took way longer than anybody else would imagine it would take because it was like, 
I can do this maybe next Wednesday between one and two. Right, right. But still, I think that says a lot that even despite the fact you had a lot on your plate and it took a long time that you sort of had the grit to stick with it to the point of actually there's a company and there are dresses and they can be bought. <laughs> right, you know? right. And, no, and, it, and it helped now that I'm thinking back, um, I should write all this down, but now that I'm thinking back yeah. uh, around that same time, my friend who was working with my husband at the time at Bain, um, Sarah Lafleur launched her line of clothing, which then is now named M.M. LaFleur. And I oh, was yeah. helping her and um, going to her trunk shows and um, taking friends to her trunk shows and just seeing what it's like to go from one career to another one. And she didn't have any fashion background either. So I think I learned a bit about what's required and what are all these different moving pieces that have to fall into place so that you can actually have a line and what are the ups and downs and what are the mistakes to avoid and just seeing the behind yeah. the scenes and helping her with her marketing and um, buying her dresses and, and seeing, you know, what it feels like to have something of that very high quality um, fit a certain way. Um, I think that helped me understand, well, what if I did this on my own, but for a different type of busy person? Right. Yeah. Well, and it's sort of, you know, you're, you're putting it out there that you're interested in this yeah. and that is getting you connected to people right. who do similar things that then opens ideas and opens doors. So it's, you know, again, it's the putting the idea on paper and then putting yourself in, in the right places because right. just sitting at your desk at, at, at being an editor is not going to right. sort of open those same doors. Right. And to that point, that is the most invaluable thing I can tell anyone because it was extremely hard for me, extremely, extremely hard for me to even utter those words that I wanted to be into fashion. I think it was only my best friend who I would, you know, send emails to about look at what this designer did and look at what she did or what yeah. if this was this, done this other way. And so it was very hard for me to say to anyone, oh, can you connect me with someone in fashion? Because I just want to leave this, you know, crazy law firm or a crazy legal life behind. And I just want to go into fashion, even though it pays nothing and I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. Because it's sort of vulnerable, too, because right. then, like, people, are they going to look at you and go, what are you talking about, <laughs> you know? And you don't want to then get discouraged by that. Exactly, <laughs> right. And that's, yeah. that's, you know, it's a two edge knife I guess you don't want to get discouraged so you don't want to tell people but then if you don't tell people you don't get opportunities you don't get to meet the right people who are going to help you along so maybe it's just being selective and telling certain people but not everyone yeah. I think that's probably exactly right who are the people that sort of will be open to helping right. and won't judge you um, although probably we get in our own heads about you know how many people are going to judge us I, I just think that's like our tendency right <laughs> and especially for lawyers who are used to being on a pretty clear track when you suggest well even for us when we think about getting off a sort of standard track we uh we maybe judge ourselves a little bit right and so like one of your former interviewees said about living her life in yeah. chapters we feel like well no i already yeah. invested all this time and money so i'm only going to this i'm going to be miserable for the next 40 years because at age 22 i decided to go to law school and that doesn't make sense either <laughs> yeah, exactly. but we have to be comfortable with you know right changing gears or switching lanes and just saying, yep, I did it. It was fine for that moment. I learned a lot and now I'm going to do something else and it's okay. It's okay if I'm not a lawyer for the rest yeah. of my life. Yeah, absolutely. 
So looking back at your career thus far and sort of your experience of going into the law, is there anything you would do differently or any advice that you would give someone sort of earlier on in their in their career trajectory? If they want to switch out of a legal career? I, yeah. Um, I would say talk to people in different careers, both who've been lawyers and who've never been lawyers, and just see what it's like. You know, you need to know more than just what is the typical salary. You need to know what is the lifestyle like and what is it like culturally at these companies, like if you want to go into publishing or if you want to go into, I don't know, product design or whatever it is, just seek out the people who are already in that space and hear about what it's like. Because I think we might have, you know, misperceptions of what it's like and the grass is always greener on the other side and you don't really know what it's like until you're there. And so we also fall into this mindset, which is a trap where if I make this one change in my life, then I'm happy. Yes, yes. And that can be kind of thing. If I change cities, yeah. then, I, then I'd be happy. If I had a different house, then I'd be happier. If I looked a different way, then I'd be happy. And we need to just get accustomed to the idea, well, you might not be happy, but your life might be better in other ways. Or maybe you'll be a little bit happier in one sense, but this other thing might not be something you want at all. So the more you talk to people in that space and you can sort of like see what it would be like for you and picture yourself in that world, then you find out, okay, is it something I should yeah. continue doing? Right. And sort of simultaneously through that process of asking around in order to sort of really identify what it is that would make you happier, you have to do a little looking inside and saying, well, what is a bit, what is it very specifically about my current situation that is making right. me unhappy? Is it right. the hours? Is it the people um, to help you sort of tailor your next step to something that will actually help? Like for me, going into, you know, your, your current position wouldn't have made me happier, but it made right. me happier, right. you know? So, you know, it's, we're, it's, we're all individuals. You just have to, right. you know, but it does take a lot of thought and energy to put into making a successful Right. And so it's good to just to get it out there and at least start somewhere, start telling your best friends and then they can tell other people. And eventually you'll just start finding yeah. people who can help you figure out what it is you want and start thinking about, well, when am I happiest? Is it when I'm at the library? Is it when I'm at the specific store? Is it when I'm volunteering with the specific group? But it is hard to even do that or contemplate that when you're working 80 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's tough. But well, listen, I, I um, I'm going to wrap up, but I also wanted to first ask you where, you know, you were telling us about your awesome dresses. You've got to let us know where to find them. Yes. Thank you so much. So the yeah. website is pirouettenyc.com and that's spelled P-I-R-O-U-E-T-T-E-N-Y-C.com and it's a direct-to-consumer company. So we're not in any stores so that we can keep the price points down. We manufacture everything in New York and now we're looking at moving manufacturing to Massachusetts and we're selling on our website um, directly to anyone who wants to shop higher-end dresses, sizes 0 to 16 regular and 0 to 16 petite. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I I know you have basically two full-time jobs <laughs> and two children, so <laughs> you can only imagine how busy your life is. Yes. <laughs> so thank, thank you. you so much. And I love your podcast. I hope you have many, many, many more episodes coming soon. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. I think one of the most important things that Melissa said today was 
Don't be miserable for the next 40 years because in your early 20s, you decided to go to law school. It seems obvious when you say it like that, but I think it's easy to lose sight of. Changing jobs, let alone careers, is a big decision, particularly leaving the practice of law when you've put so much time and effort and money into it. It can be hard and it can be risky. But if you're truly unhappy where you are, why does the alternative of staying there sound any better? I think if you look at the situation from this different angle, it may help you find that jolt of motivation to make some moves towards something new.